The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Astrology reveals insights into the greater world, its changing cycles, and universal forces. Through the lens of astrology, we examine special topics and current events, investigate their meaning, and discuss solutions to personal and global problems. Welcome to Astrology, the Theory of Everything, with Mary Jo Weavers and Janie McCarthy. We're here to show you how astrology can be a powerful tool for self-awareness and transformation. You'll be amazed how everything is interconnected when using astrology. Now, here are your hosts, Mary Jo and Janie. Welcome. I'm Mary Jo Weavers, here with my co-host and friend Janie McCarthy and our very special guest, storyteller Gemini Brett. Hello, Janie, and hello, Brett. Salutations. It's so great to have you here with us today, Brett. Janie? Well, today we're going to hear from the interface of astronomy and astrology, the marriage of heaven and earth from Brett Joseph. Gemini Brett is a modern mystic and shamanic astrologer. He travels the world exploring sacred sites and the skies above. He leads workshops and sacred ceremonies to heal the condition he calls starvation by voicing the mysterious vows which have always married the earth to the heavens. We are so happy to have you with us today, Brett. It's my pleasure. So, um, we were going to start our conversation. First of all, your name, your moniker, Gemini Brett. Tell us what the backstory is about that, would you, Brett? Oh, well, usually when astrologers ask that question, it's um, because I was born in late October, and I am therefore a a Scorpio. And um, uh, there's a few reasons. One is... um, I think, in a sense, to heal the idea of this tribal identification we have with our sun sign. You know, I like to say that we're so much more than our sun sign. In fact, that we're all of the signs, all of these archetypes um, wish to live and breathe through each of us. Um, And sun sign astrology is kind of new. So there's a bit of that in it. Astrologically, I have a Gemini ascendant and a Gemini moon. And... um, the shamanic astrology paradigm, which is the stock of my starry stew, we, we see the soul as coming from the tribe of the moon and heading towards the tribe of the ascendant. So it's like I have these Gemini bookends. And Gemini is just the archetype that I feel best kind of describes the way that um, I like to show myself in this astrological community as a, as a storyteller, as a starry teller. And, um, and Scorpio is kind of hidden after all, right? Right. <laughs> Well, being a Gemini, I've heard some of your stories before Gemini, uh, Gemini Brett, uh, both 
in person and on your website. And I know that you are a very good teller of stories about twins. Can you tell us some stories about twins? Wow, there are so many. Um, well, one, well, one that touches this topic very beautifully um, is from the land that we call Egypt, but the land the, those we call Egyptians called Kemet. And um, it starts with twins called Tefnut and Shu, but also with their twins who were Jeb and Newt. And these twins, like their parents, had this legendary love for one another, but it was not allowed for Jeb was Father Earth and Newt was Mother Sky. So they had to be separated to serve their purposes. They were held apart. She, Newt, touching him just with her fingertips and toes, but longing for a much closer embrace. And Thoth, the the great scribe, he heard their pain their pleas, their prayers, and he decided to help. So what he did was to challenge and defeat the moon itself at this ancient game of Senate. Again and again he won, and for his winnings, Thoth demanded the moon increase its brilliance. You see, the curse was that Newt and Jeb would be separated for all days of the calendar year. But that's when the calendar had only 360 days. So when the moon increased its brilliance, five more days were given to the earth. And during those five days, Jeb and Newt are allowed to come together to play, to embrace. And this is the marriage of Mother Sky and Father Earth, the marriage of heaven and earth. That's a beautiful story. I'm also a twin, and I also have a Gemini ascendant. And I love this theme of yours, Brett, about marrying the heaven with the earth and how it has shown up in ancient civilizations with the construction of sites that have been aligned with the stars in order to manifest, provoke, activate the energies of the cosmos. How about giving us some examples of where that's happened around the world, and please don't forget our own nation's capital. (laughs) Yeah, sure thing. Um, Well, one that... I think really first came to the public mind was Giza in Egypt, the, the Great Pyramid and its brother and sister there, the, the three pyramids of Giza that Robert Bavall and Adrian Gilbert in their book, The Orion Mystery, showed maps the belt stars of Orion, <clears throat> excuse me, not only by geometry, distance one to the next but by size which shows their magnitude or their relative luminosity in the sky and you can actually zoom out from those belt stars and see that there's a couple of other stars one of the hands and the feet of Orion there in the desert of Egypt we might assume that the two other principal stars the other foot and the other hand are buried somewhere in the sands or crumbled sometime long ago But what really brought that theory onto the ground was that the way that Orion, the constellation, corresponds to the Milky Way in the sky is equal to the way that this 
Orion map of Giza corresponds to the Nile River on Earth. And we see this in many places, and there's this giant focus on the giant, on Orion. Orion's belt is also mapped by a few pyramids in China that very few people know about because no one's allowed to go there. But they have been mapped from satellites, and we can see that correlation. They're actually even bigger than the Giza pyramids, if you can believe that. Wow. The pyramids of Teotihuacan outside of Mexico City, the same thing, Orion's Belt. One of the great Nazca lines, these mysterious ground, you know, art, line art that can only be seen from the air in Peru. One of the Nazca lines, one of the most famous ones that looks like a spider, that one maps Orion just about perfectly as well. And he also shows up in Arizona. There's a book called The Orion Zone by Gary David, which will show you this. It's it's really beautiful that the three principal mesas of the Hopi culture map Orion's belt. And, you know, what's interesting there is while they built onto those mesas, they didn't build them. So that's something higher than human that's mapping that on the ground. But all of the Orion stars show up in Mexico, Arizona, um, and Sirius is Chaco Canyon in New Mexico on that map. It merges over into Nevada, Southern California. So that's a really amazing and large map right here in our country. It's a very interesting, mysterious, and rather strange one that opens a rabbit hole. Maybe we shouldn't journey down right now, but that the footprints of the World Trade Center Mm. towers and the new Freedom Tower also map Orion's belt. So that's Mm. pretty interesting. But you asked about Washington, D.C. I did. (laughs) And yeah, well, D.C., I mean, we could do... 20 radio shows on on that sacred site alone because it is a sacred site. It's interesting. Um, I've had to kind of relax some of my oh biases to feel into that and to go out there and see the beautiful mythology of DC, the way that the temples are aligned to stars, statues themselves. I mean, if you're out there walking at night and you know the sky, here's a statue who's looking at Polaris at the North Star. You know, and her name's Whoa. astronomy, <clears throat> and that's a really amazing thing. She's she's a really beautiful little statue above the um, western doorway, uh, or the, I guess the southern doorway on the western side of the Library of Congress. There's three doorways, and the one that you walk into, you walk under the statue that's called astronomy, and she's holding this globe in her hand that shows three of the constellations really three of the animals associated with them, which are the the scales and the scorpion and the archer. And she's staring right at the North Star. So I had to go back at night to see that that was true. David Ovidson in his book, um, The Secret Architecture of Our Nation's Capital, suggests that the White House and the Washington Monument and the Capitol Dome this right triangle that they form is that of three great stars of the sky, which are Regulus, the heart of the lion, Spica, the shaft of wheat that the virgin holds, and Arcturus. And, you know, I'm not so sure about that one. 
Um, but his theory that those stars are emphasizing the connection to the Virgin that's in D.C., to the Virgin Mother. There's no doubt about that. When you walk that site and have your eyes open and your eyes to the skies as well, you'll see that there's a lot of respect, honoring, anchoring perhaps of the Virgin constellation in many of its forms. Hmm. There is so much art, statuary, ceramics, lighting fixtures, uh, all over the nation's capital. If astrology was not an enormously popular field of study or followed by the mainstream, why was it such an enormous theme and so many benefactors that would have come up with the financing of creating these artifacts? Oh, yeah, well, it's pretty clear that the mainstream didn't build those buildings, right? Um, I mean, there were times when some of these great zodiacs of D.C. were being constructed, and D.C. has 30 active zodiacs, and the, the floor of the Library of Congress is a zodiac. It's the 12 signs around the sun, and so Aries is facing east, you know? I mean, it's basically oriented correctly as well. Um, the great melon fountain not far from there. It's one of the most beautiful representations of the Zodiac I've ever seen. But there's Zodiacs in the Academy of National Sciences. I mean, they're, they're just all over the place. And I understand it's uh, almost 10 times as many as any other city in the world. So this isn't some co- coincidence, right? I mean, when you take the tours there and you ask, as I often have, of Oh, well, why is that statue holding, you know, that globe with astrological signs on it? It's like, oh, that's just decoration. No, it's not just decoration. But this <laughs> was a time when people in our country even were being persecuted for practicing astrology. So it's really strange, you know, it's, it's very underground, it's very hidden. And um, in the astrological tradition or looking into astrological history, it's generally assumed that there was this time that astrology just disappeared. Right, which was kind of between, uh, well, even like the Renaissance astrologers and then like the humanistic movement of um, Rudyard, earlier uh, Mark Edmund Jones, but really before that, William Lilly. You know, a, a lot of people see him as bringing astrology back to the forefront not long ago. But between those times, it was alive and rich. It was just hidden in the mystery traditions, you know, which is where it started. And I can't speak as an initiate of those traditions. Um, I'm not a member of any of those secret brotherhoods and really just observe them from without and observe their workings, which is an interesting way in also. But, you know, it's interesting. I know the two of you have done some shows and are very interested in the history of astrology. And it takes us really back to the beginnings of astrology because, right, there was a time when astrology was not for the masses. And certainly, it, it still is not. It's available to the masses, anyone who wants to study. But is there still an amount of, of our astro- astrological art that's hidden in the mystery traditions where it seems to have gotten its start. Do you think it is hidden or do you think it's just because we've been disconnected from having astrology prominent in our lives that we're unaware of what it is that's around us and what we're seeing? 
Yeah, I mean, and the way that it's disconnected. So that's a place where I'm ho- really hoping to get into on this call is this idea of the marriage of heaven and earth and astrology and astronomy. Because not only have we been disconnected from the astrological wisdom, you know, which most of us are cultured to believe is either superstition or just ridiculous kind of for entertainment only, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it used to be the practice, or I don't want to say religion because that's a strong and tainted word at this point, but that was the deal. Do we know if everyone, though, is working in that art form? And I think that's a really important question. Certainly, we know that's not the truth today, right? There's a small percentage of us who are living astrologically, who are astrologers. And when I say astrologer, I don't mean people who are receiving money for giving professional consultations, you know. To me, this is if you follow the movement of the planets, then you're an astrologer. And... An astronomer, right? So it's really interesting the tie between those two. Um, there's this saying, it's kind of watered down, but that astronomy is a glove and astrology is the living hand that wears it. Mm. I like that. And I like to yeah. add that, that mythology is the blood running through that hand's veins. These starry stories that marriage the one to the other and that animate the whole thing. These stories that are so alive in our, each and every one of our cells and that carry this old wisdom, you know, and they've really been separated. I mean, so astronomically, for one reason, because the bright city lights have kind of taken the stars from our gaze so that we city dwellers have to drive for many, many miles and maybe spend a night under the darkness to see the Milky Way, right? I mean, there's so many people who will live an entire lifetime without seeing the Milky Way in this day and age. And that's a pretty wild thing, you know? Brett? Yeah. We're going to be going into a break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. I just wanted to remind our listeners that we are going to be taking calls and the telephone number you would want to use is 866-472-5795. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at www.janiemccarthy.com. 
Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out her website at www.maryjoweavers.com. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Listening to Astrology, the Theory of Everything. To reach the hosts or the guests today, please call 1 866 472 5795. Again, that's 1 866 472 5795. You may also send an email to astrotalkradio at iCloud.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. It's Janie McCarthy with my co-host Mary Jo Weavers and our guest Gemini Brett, also known as Brett Joseph. And uh, Brett was talking about how sad it is that there are people in this world that may never really be able to gaze at the stars very well because of all of the ambient light that comes from our cities. I've had that experience. I was at the uh, Hopkins Observatory here outside of Baltimore, and it's a fabulous observatory, but it was very difficult to see most of the stars that were being referred to by the guide that was with us that night. So please, Brett, uh, continue on that thread, if you would. Right. So that's the condition I call starvation. And we are fortunate that at this time, most of us can get out of the city and get to a place where we can look up and connect to the stars. And I think that's really important, you know. We've kind of lost that that spiritual connection that happens when you just look up and you see the enormity of all that is, you know, and, and just the size of the heavens. And then you find your way, I think, through a couple of options. And one is, oh, I'm so small. I'm just this tiny little thing on this one planet of this universe that's endless, or on the other side, more of the hermetic side, wow, I'm so gigantic because I am all of that. So connecting to the sky, I feel, is really important. And I feel that it's something that is really tending to the evolution of astrology. So the history of astrology, which has been this interest, is really important. And there was a time very recently, right, just in the 90s with like Project Hindsight, when translations of the old Hellenistic texts were coming back, right? And so the older astrology, I mean, techniques that have been lost, at least to the public for millennia, are being retrieved. And at the same time, there were sky astrologers. I mean, Daniel Giamario, the founder of the shamanic astrology paradigm, you know, was one of the, the key figures in this movement of astrologers who were beginning to look up again, because 
we see a beautiful thing when we start watching the sky and get our head out of just being in the chart, right? Because the chart is a, is a one-dimensional thing. We're only looking at longitude. We're only looking at, you know, this, this one line. Is it be zero Aries or 29 Pisces? And when we look to the sky, we see that in a sense, not all conjunctions are created equally, um, that planets aren't right on top of each other when they're conjunct, and a whole other dimension opens up. So in this marriage of heaven and earth, as astrologers, I think it's really important for us to remember also to be astronomers. You know, if one is the glove and the other is the hand, cool, I choose the hand, but gloves are awesome. You know, without the glove, Michael doesn't do the moonwalk as far as I'm concerned. And that's really important to us, you know. So... There, part of this evolution that's coming back now is remembering to see the sky. I mean, there's a lot of astrologers I know I've been out in the field with and say, wow, look at Saturn right now. Which one is Saturn? And I just think to myself, like, really? Like, you know, we, we know these glyphs so well on a piece of paper or on the computer screen. And when we look at that chart, we're looking down, right? We're looking away from the conscious beings that the planets are. Those glyphs represent, to me, a very conscious entity who is participating you know with us here in the earth game and so we know what astronomers tend to think of astrologers or those that we call astronomers these days and that's kind of a sad thing that scientists you know will just push astrology off into the realms of ridiculous pseudoscience and I understand that because I was one of them for a long time in my lifetime but typically we're doing that always we're doing that without any scientific approach to astrology because when you approach astrology scientifically, you realize it certainly isn't a science and much more than that. But also, astrologers have found themselves looking away from the sky. You know, I mean, I I love bringing astrologers out under the night and say, point your hand at Venus there. Okay, now point your hand at Saturn there. Do you see that? Your two hands, like you're making a square right now. That's a square. Can you feel it? You know, and we bring it out of the page and under the sky. And so this is one of the ways that astrology is evolving. And so when I say that mythology is the blood that pumps through the the hand's veins, right? So astronomy is the glove. Astrology is the living hand that wears it. And mythology is the blood pumping through its veins. I don't mean mythology as this sense of these fake stories from long ago that carried no information. No, not at all. I mean as the truest archetypal stories. And those are the stories that we live, that we eat and breathe and dance, you know, and make love to. This is our lifetime. And we are the conduits for the marriage of heaven and earth. We are the vows, you see. But if we only do astrology, which actually is the earthly, or astronomy, which is the heavenly, then we're missing that connection, you know? And if we only do the starry stories, if we're only living, that's cool, but it's really wonderful when we begin to become present with it, you know? And we can basically um, intentionally dance to that song of our birth chart. 
So there's many places we could go here, but one place I think is really important, and it's really almost like um, anticipating a great time to come. You know, a lot of we astrologers, for the astrologers listening, it's like, okay, what do we do now that the Uranus-Pluto square is over? What do we talk about now? Well, first of all, the Uranus-Pluto square is not over, right? It's <laughs> right. still strongly aligned. I mean, look at February 2016, February 2017 on the chart. You'll see how close they are. But up and coming is this Saturn-Neptune square, which is a really interesting thing, this next key phase of that 35-year cycle. And I've been meditating on that a lot lately and speaking about that a lot lately. And it seems to come into this conversation in interesting ways because when we look at these two energies of Saturn and Neptune, and in a sense, they couldn't be more different, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Saturn as the structure and the law of the land and all these things. And first of all, Saturn gets kind of a bad rap. And I feel when Saturn had Aquarius taken away from it, it it's lost a lot of itself. And that's a whole nother topic. But if we want to use Saturn as a symbol for this real world, the tangible, the stuff that we can touch, let's do that. And then Neptune as the ethereal and the dreamy and the vision based, right? And so this is this really interesting um, entrance into the same conversation of the marriage of heaven and earth, because we would think in a sense that Saturn then is the very earthly, the very physical. And when we think of like science, it's there, it's that kind of rigid, I want to see results, you know what I mean? And then Neptune as this place of belief, faith, the dream, the vision, relaxing that connection to the solid, tangible stuff so that we can entertain wisdom that comes from places that are not fixed onto the earth. And so that tension in the square is going to be really interesting. And I think it brings to fold this conversation of heaven and earth, maybe astrology and astronomy, in many ways yin and yang, and the great dualities and polarities that are so prevalent here in the Earth game. But, you know, astronomers, very rigid scientific astronomers, who we like to think of as astronomers, and they're not the only ones, but they're kind of on the Saturn side. And they think, in a sense, that astrology then is all Neptune, right? It's all belief. It's all faith. There's no science behind it. Well, the three of us, we do math every day, right? I mean, right. there's a huge scientific approach to astrology. So that's, to me, one of the great conversations that's actually going to be a stimulus for this reconnection of the heavens to the earthly, not only in our astrological practice, but in the lives of everyone. And it brings into mind also in a sense, these branches of astrology, so many are looking now to like the deeper traditional systems. And it's a very causal astrology that, right? It's like, okay, here comes the ringed one Saturn, 30 years, these are the effects that Saturn has on you. You better watch out, right? And this is good and this is bad. Planets are malefic or benefic in this whole scene, right? And on the other side, more of like the evolutionary side, or maybe what we would call the new astrology side, it's a little more Neptunian, right? Uranian, Neptunian. And there's a beauty to it, which is that, no, these aren't causes, right? These are 
opportunities. These are energies that can come in. They can present themselves in many ways. There is no good and there is no bad. Take responsibility in what you're doing. And the cool thing is both of these practices totally work. And one might be better for one type of client while the other for another. And I think actually studying on both both directions is important and then being able to sense what somebody best resonates with when they come to sit with us. You know, that's one way we can expand our own practice. But I wanted to, to read this thing to you. This is from, from the Hermetica. Um, it's a modern translation by Timothy Freak and Peter Gandhi um, in their book, The Hermetica, The Lost Wisdom of the Pharaohs. Now, legend has it that these are the words of Hermes Trismegistus, who not only was a living being here on Earth, but was Hermes, was Mercury, was the planet, who goes back to who the Greeks called Thoth, but that's who the Egyptians actually called Jehuti, the scribe of that story I told before. And so, in a sense, these are the words of a planet. And these many mythological and mystical approaches to astrology teach us that Hermes is the one who brought this art form to us, that it was Thoth, that it was Jehuti. So I'm reading from one of the treatises of the Hermetica that's called The Universal and the Particular. And it says, The human body is an earthly temple constructed by the power of the zodiac which makes myriad forms from simple archetypes. There are 12 signs of the zodiac and the forms they produce fall into 12 divisions. They are, however, inseparably united in their action. Nature makes the human body so that its constitution resonates with the patterns of the stars in such a way that they mutually affect one another. Mm. It's as if we as human beings are the embodiment of these planetary bodies in the cosmos. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that aligns to other words of Hermes, you know, which have kind of been watered down to be ex- expressed as as above, so below. Yes. Within, mm-hmm. so without. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, planet means moving star, right? Mm-hmm. So Mercury is a star. And in Mercury's words, he says that nature makes the human body so that its constitution resonates with the patterns of the stars in such a way that they mutually affect one another. You see, so he's saying that the human body, we, <laughs> affect the stars and the planets as much as they affect us. Hmm. And of course we do. And this is as above, so below. This is a relationship, right? So we know as astrologers that Mercury on your chart represents nous. That's what the Hermeticist called it, but consciousness. Yeah, how you think and learn and express yourself and communicate and all this. Mercury is this incredibly overlooked planet in the astrological art, I feel, these days. It was mm-hmm. given that Mercury is the one who gave us astrology. Um, and it means so much about the way we communicate. And this statement from Mercury himself is reminding us that this is a relationship. So this is what Mercury means on your chart. What do you mean on Mercury's chart? Hmm. Brett, relationships are dynamic. They are not static. And so our relationship as human beings has changed many times over with our relationship with the planets, the stars, the archetypes that are there. Mm -hmm. 
So t- let's talk a little bit about how the evolution of archetypes affect us and how the collective's evolution affects the archetypes. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that latter question because everything is evolving. You see, these planets themselves are evolving. They're changing. I mean, even physically, you know, we're really becoming well aware of Earth changes and climate change right now. Earth is the one that's having the least amount of change of the planets in the systems, which is really interesting. And that's a whole other conversation. But there's physical change. There's energetic change happening. And we're changing, right? And just as you said, relationships are conscious. They evolve. So when we're in a partnership, we want to learn how to communicate with our partner, right? Mm -hmm. And um, this is the same thing with Mercury or with Venus or with Jupiter. We are in relationship as Earth and as Earthlings to Jupiter and to Jupiterlings, (laughs) whatever they may be. And Go ahead. I, I wanted you to um, drill down on our relationship with Jupiter. Let's, let's take one of these planets and talk about the relationship of mankind to this Jupiterian archetype. What is changing? What do we have to look forward to? Where have we come from and where are we going with this relationship? Oh, wow, that's a endless and incredible question that, well, you know, why don't you tell me what Jupiter means? It's categorized as a benefic planet. It's had a, a role as a traditional ruler of Pisces in addition to its current rulership of modern rulership of Sagittarius. So the last 2,000 years, the Piscean age was really over 800 of those two, over more than that, um, my math's not not accurate, but the majority of time that the Piscean Age was tracked, Jupiter was its ruler. My sense is that because of the joyfulness, the optimism that Jupiter brings to uh, people's lives, that there's a transition there archetypally where Jupiter helps us with transitions to and change of all kinds. And instead of having the Piscean, Piscean experience of suffering through change, Jupiter now with the Sagittarian tilt on it helps us to experience change through its meaningfulness, its purposefulness, and hopefully its joyfulness. I love what you brought in that, that during the Pisces age, Pisces was taken from Jupiter. <laughs> what, a, what an interesting thing, right? So that's like 1846 or whatever when Neptune's discovered and who knows when the transition was made after then. Um, yeah, and so what I love too about that response is we started with some of the definitions, some of the kind of recipe that we know from the astrological science, this is this, this is that, whatever. But then you really opened into your feelings of Jupiter and into the contemplations, right? Because this is Jupiter. I mean, to me, and there's many different kind of chakra correlations of the planets, but for me, Jupiter is the crown chakra stuff. It is the 
um, divine knowledge that's coming in from who knows where if we just relax ourselves and open to it. Jupiter in India, I understand, is called Guru. And it was a conversation with the energy that is Jupiter in the jungles of Peru that brought me back into the astrological fold. So Jupiter will always be that to me. He is a teacher. He is a guide into higher wisdom. And there's an energy in Jupiter that I call Good Father, um, like that gigantic red storm on Jupiter that's three times the size of Earth is like this eye of the Father looking down upon us and letting us know that it's all good, even in the times of the most drama and trauma and stress here in the Earth game, which is here for our evolution. Um, so, yeah, the Piscean Sagittarian sense of Jupiter, it's a really, really cool contemplation. It opens so many windows, but this is a thing that I really encourage all astrologers to do is to get outside and to just gaze at the light of Jupiter and to ask Jupiter, who are you? Thank you, Brett. That's wonderful. We're going to go to break right now. And when we come back, we'll be continuing our conversation with Brett. And we will also be taking live calls for him. The number to call is 1-866-472-5795. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out her website at www.maryjoweavers.com. Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at www.janiemccarthy.com. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. Listening to Astrology, the Theory of Everything. To reach the hosts or the guests today, please call 1 866 472 5795. Again, that's 1 866 472 5795. You may also send an email to astrotalkradio at iCloud.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm Mary Jo Weavers here with my co-host, Janie McCarthy and Brett Joseph. And we were just talking with Brett about the archetypes uh, that are represented by the planets and uh, how they've been evolving over time as we have. And uh, Brett was just telling us, you know, as astrologers and as human beings, look up to the sky and ask Jupiter, who is he and what is he? Brett, will you continue on that? Yeah, I mean, this is a living relationship, you see, with the planets. And I feel that we astrologers, those who are following the planetary movements, in a sense, we are carrying the torch of our relationship as humanity to the planets. So this is a, a different thing than these are just rocks and ice in the space that have these gravitational causal effects on us or electromagnetic or whatever it may be. Right. This is no, we are in a relationship with them. And when we become active in our relationships, conscious in our communication, then a relationship itself can evolve. And since there's a very small percentage of astrologers in the world, right, I mm-hmm. feel that it's our responsibility to really be careful and conscious of that communication. So, for example, With Mercury retrograde, if we're all going into that negative fear-based scapegoat zone of Mercury retrograde, then those are the results that we're going to see. You know, Mercury says, oh my gosh, they're talking to me again. I've missed them so. (laughs) And what do you want? You want me to blow up your computer and (laughs) screw up your plane travel and and your contract? Okay, I mean, I hope this serves you, right? Because that's what we're asking for. And so that's what we manifest What if in those times of Mercury retrograde, when Mercury is actually closest to Earth, as it ever gets, that Mm -hmm. we pray for beauty in the things mercurial? Back back to Jupiter and this idea, because Jupiter was the first um, planet that I started really speaking with. Um, You know, I would say maybe this is just a reflection of my personal schizophrenia. Who knows? But I have had like active conversations with Jupiter and you know it doesn't happen necessarily in English though it has but if you look to a planet and ask it to be a teacher for you and just wait and relax and don't expect results you might find that synchronicities or dreams start bringing answers to questions that you ask. Jupiter, some have called the conductor of the celestial symphony, which I love because there's a couple of musical examples I'd love to bring in here to bring us full circle. One is back to that kind of Saturn-Neptune conversation. Um, And this question that as astrologers we find ourselves asking because we see it works and then it's like, whoa, is this just like faded? And that's one fear of astrology, right? It's like if we start going into it, then there's no free will left. But to me, that's not the deal at all. I like to use this idea of a symphony. I like to say that your celestial fingerprint, your natal chart, this is your song. It's like Gaia has Ohm, her resonance Earth. We know this. We've measured it. All of the planets have an instrument. They have a vibration. And I like to see the signs and its melodies. So at the time of your birth, you're being surrounded by the symphony of instruments playing their different melodies. It is your soundtrack, yours and yours alone, that you're here to dance to in your life. So the song is the fate, but you can dance to a song in any way you choose. 
You can even choose not to dance at all, which frankly is boring, but it's valid, right? (laughs) And that's the free will side of things. And the other analogy is this. It's really more of a life experience. I'm a musician. I, in my last life, in this life, was a professional touring musician for many years. And I learned music. I'm a saxophone player primarily. I learned saxophone like through the books. You know, this is how you hold your horn to play an E, and this is quarter note, and this is G, and this is whole note, and this is what this piece of music sounds like. You know, it was kind of like very rote and non-musical. And then later when I started playing with musicians, I had to start developing my ear and start learning how to just listen and play and play what I was feeling and have that conversation with the other musicians, which is where music really comes alive and that conversation as a band with the audience where it really, really comes alive. And that's music, right? And this is left brain and right brain, and they're both meant to be practiced. So the wonderful experience that I have in astrology is that I came into it intuitively. I found my way to shamanic astrology, which I really encourage you to check out, shamanicastrology.com. And it's a little bit more of an intuitive sense and a direct connection to the planets. But that, you know, the way that I do that, that opened for me in my own way. And then now I'm going back into the roots of the thing. And it's like I can play the music, but now I'm learning how to read music. And these are the greatest musicians I know. They learn first from their ears, just picking up an instrument and learning how to play it. And then later they bring in the theory, which really expands their music. So I think it's really important that we practice astrology in both ways, that we have the theory, that we have the vocabulary, but that also we relax that and can open up into the living breathing entity that astrology is because it too is meant to evolve in each of us in a different way and then we are participating with that evolution then we are becoming conscious in that relationship in that communication then we are awakening into a lucid state into this dream that together we are weaving Mm. That's beautiful, Brett, and that really resonates with me. I know the first early years of practicing astrology, it did feel more mechanistic and more rote, more Saturnian. Uh, And then as it's evolved for me, it's become more Neptunian and it's more intuitive as I relax and kind of flow into it and, and try to connect both with clients, with the chart, and I do want to start looking to the sky more now, listening to what you've been sharing with us. Yeah, in my own experience, it just really opens up that intuitive side. So, I mean, there's some really great kind of exercises available to us right now. We saw that Venus-Jupiter conjunction last week of July 1st, just after midnight was the exact Pacific time. But we saw it the day before on June 30th because Venus and Jupiter had set by midnight anyway. And it was this beautiful close alignment, you know? People were calling it the Star of Bethlehem because it was the closest Venus and Jupiter, the brightest lights that aren't the luminaries, the moon and the sun, have been astronomically, we're told, for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, these were the three wise men, okay, looking at that star. And to me, they wouldn't have been too wise if they thought that that conjunction was one star, right? Mm -hmm, (laughs) Because it was very clearly two bright and beautiful dots in the sky, 
right? Mm -hmm. Very close to one another, but that shows you, okay, they were perfect on the chart. They were exact on the chart. And why aren't they exact in the sky? Why is this not an occultation, which is like an eclipse? And that's because there's also latitude, right? Or what scientists call declination, the distance from the path of the sun, the ecliptic. And so here's Venus and Jupiter very, very close to one another, but not on top of one another. And we are in a very rare rare year. It hasn't happened since 1991 that we've had three exact Venus-Jupiter conjunctions in one year. Hmm. It won't happen again, I believe, until 2036. I did this research recently. And it's a pretty incredible thing. But this is a really fun exercise because watch these conjunctions of Venus and Jupiter. So if we just use cookbook mathematical astrology, Venus, Jupiter conjunction, Venus plus Jupiter in this sign equals this, we lose this experiential connection to them. Mm -hmm. Because when we saw that conjunction last week, June 30th, they were so close. The next conjunction, which is also in the evening sky, but lower in the sky on August 4th, they're very far apart from one another by latitude. Okay, And then they have a third conjunction this year. It's on October 25th in the morning sky, just actually on the day that Venus is at the highest she gets in the morning sky. And they'll be back together again, right close to one another. Okay, so we see together in the evening sky conjunction, far apart conjunction in the evening sky, and then very close together in the morning sky. So there's all these different energies that come in when we look at the sky and right. you know, the, one of the great alchemical sayings is solve a coagulum, tear apart and put back together. And that's happening with Venus and Jupiter here in these three conjunctions. The same thing with the three Venus Mars conjunctions that are happening this year, which have also been kind of rare in recent history. So it's, you know, it just, Seeing the sky, opening to it, having this conversation, taking the time to really watch the movement of the planets through the signs, through the constellations, gives us that intuitive sense where we are consciously communicating with the planets. And that's this marriage of heaven and earth. Brett? We have about two minutes left. Would you share with the audience what you feel is the symbolism, the message of these recurring Venus-Jupiter conjunctions? Well, that's longer than a two-minute thing. I want to make sure I say before I split that people can find me at morethanastrology.com. And I've recently started a podcast called the Storytelling Podcast. You can link from the, the homepage of morethanastrology.com, but where I, I tell old mythology with original music, and then I go into like cosmologically decoding those stories. So please check that out. Um, the Venus-Jupiter conjunctions, yeah, super interesting. And again, they haven't happened since 91, and they don't happen again since... 2036. And the reason why astronomically is Venus has to retrograde right near Jupiter. It has to pass Jupiter, retrograde, conjunct there in retrograde, and then head back across Jupiter the third time. And that's happening with Venus and Mars this year as well. And we won't have Venus and Mars doing that again in the same year that Venus and Jupiter have three conjunctions until 2060. So it's one of the million indicators that this is such a special time now. 
Brett, I am so sorry to have to interrupt you, but our show is at an end. Uh, we would like to thank you so much for being with us. I know that we're going to make a plan to have you come back and share so much of more that you know. And I would thank our listeners for being with us today. Ask them to like us on Facebook at Astro Talk Radio or link up with Mary Jo and myself on LinkedIn. And Twitter as well on hashtag Astro Talk Radio. Next week, we'll be talking about the profession of astrology with the president of the Organization for Professional Astrology, Maurice Fernandez. Thank you all so very much for joining us and listen next week as well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of the show today. Please join Janie McCarthy and Mary Jo Weavers again next week for another edition of Astrology, the Theory of Everything. We're live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America's 7th Wave Channel. May the stars be with you. Thank you.